All right, turn to Micah chapter 3. A few weeks ago um, was the last time we spoke on Micah 3, and the reason was we had the friends of Israel come in and then the friends of the Arabs and (laughs) Barnabas, and I think the Apostle Paul was here one night. And uh, so uh, I haven't been here for a while, which is probably a good thing. But uh, we started off in Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through, we got through verse 7, and let's review a little bit. We're talking about the leadership of Israel. Primarily, the southern kingdom is addressed. We've, we've been in Micah for a little while now, and we're in chapter 3 now, for those of you who haven't been here or have, have just come in. But we're talking about leadership in chapter 3, leadership of Israel, which was a bad leadership, by the way, except for the king, Hezekiah, at this time. Otherwise, it wasn't all that great. And uh, there was a, 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 a well-known independent Baptist pastor from back in my past years ago, whom nobody here probably would know outside of Ryan and Caroline, um, and I heard this saying over and over again. This guy said this. He said, everything rises and falls on leadership. Do you remember that saying, Ryan? <laughs> and uh, I think to a large extent that's true, not necessarily 100%, but to, to a large extent things do rise and fall on leadership. Even small changes that are made or small decisions that are made maybe by the government or any, anybody else in a church even affect people in some way. Um, unfortunately, the leadership of Israel was horrible at this time in general. It was at an all-time low during the time of Micah. The civic leaders were not doing a very good job at all. They were unjust. Um, the spiritual leaders of Israel and the southern kingdom in particular were um, not shepherding the people as they should have. They were selfish, not caring about the people of God. And so in Micah chapter 3, Micah denounces the leadership of Israel. And just to review the first seven verses again quickly, in the first four verses, the rulers of Israel are denounced. The civic rulers of Israel are denounced by Micah. Notice their attitude toward justice. Look at verses 1 in the beginning of verse 2. Micah says, Hear now, heads of Jacob, this is Micah 3.1, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil? He says, aren't you guys supposed to be about justice? But apparently you're not. You hate good and love evil. That's their attitude toward justice. And then the practice of injustice by the rulers in verses, the end of verse 2 and verse 3. Micah describes it like this. You rulers, you tear off the skin from the, your people and their bones from their flesh. You eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones, and so on. He compares them to cannibals, the way they were administering justice, or I should say injustice in that society compared to cannibalism. Such a cruel um, way they did things to the people in that in that day you know they knew better deuteronomy 16 taught them how to carry out justice they weren't to distort justice they're told rulers weren't they weren't to take bribes Uh, they were not to be partial in their judgment and they were to pursue one thing and that was justice and justice alone nothing else they weren't doing that and then their rejection by the lord look at verse four Then these rulers will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time. And that's, wow, that's a horrible judgment when God turns his back on you and doesn't answer you and doesn't respond to you. You know you're in trouble then. That's that's a rejection by God. And then not only the rulers of Israel denounced, but in verses 5 to 8, the prophets of Israel are denounced as well. Going from bad to worse. Why are they denounced? Because they mislead the people. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. 
He starts off right away with this indictment. You prophets, which are obviously false prophets, you're leading my people astray. You're supposed to be leading them toward God and to the word of God, and yet you're leading them just the opposite from that. So they mislead the people. And then the prophets are motivated by selfishness. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Look at verse 5. When they, it says, the prophets have something to bite with their teeth, they have something to eat, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. In other words, if the offerings are good for the prophets, the false prophets, man, you get a good message. You get a message of peace and prosperity. Well, God bless you people. God's going to bless you because they don't say this because we got a good offering today. When the offerings were down and they didn't receive the material goods they felt they should have gotten, then they got a message of judgment. The holy war was declared upon them. We've been talking about our offerings recently, Mike, and achieving self-support one day, and maybe we should use that method when we do that. But uh, that would be a wrong method, one used by the false prophets. And so they're motivated by selfishness. Depending on what kind of offering they get or what kind of material goods are given or gifts are given, then they'll respond with that a message appropriate to that. And then notice in verses 6 to 7, their doom is sure. The prophets, the false prophets' doom is sure. He says, therefore, it will be night for you without vision, darkness for you without divination. I like the next phrase. The sun will go down on the prophets. That's what God says about these prophets. The sun's going to go down on their ministry. The sun's going to set on their ministry. It's going to be over for them. And picking up tonight, we'll start here with this in verse 8. This is the last verse of this section, the prophets of Israel being denounced. Note the stark contrast with true prophets. The stark contrast with true prophets, especially Micah himself. Look what Micah says. This is a very interesting verse, Micah 3.8. If you want to memorize the verse of Micah, here's a good one. Micah says this. On the other hand, I, Micah, am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, and to, even to Israel, his sin. This is a stark contrast to what's preceded this. He's talked about the false prophets, their selfishness, and the way they handled their, the work that they should have done for God. Uh, these prophets should have done it in a certain way. They didn't. Now Mike says, let me present a stark contrast. I'm different from you guys. <laughs> I don't do things like you guys. Micah says, I'm a true prophet of God, and this is how a true prophet of God operates. He's not bragging about himself. He's just stating a fact. Whereas you guys are all wrong in what you're doing, I'm going to show you how, how it's supposed to be. Literally, this, this word I is emphasized. He's saying, on the other hand, I myself, in contrast to you guys, am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. He's a true prophet of God. The false prophets were characterized by bad theology. We saw that in chapter 2. Characterized by a selfish attitude. Characterized by misleading people, uh, taking them astray from God. But Micah is characterized by the power of God and boldness to preach the word of God. You know, Mike, I have to admit, I thought of Mike Sprott when I was reading this verse. I really did. I thought about, I thought about him because I've seen him in different situations where this is true of him. or he's, It's always true of him. And I'm not just telling, telling you that, but I just thought of Mike. This comparison, though, is, like I say, it's not because Mike is proud bragging about himself. He's stating what it's like to be a true prophet. He's doing it because he wants the hearers to know what a true prophet of God is really like. A true prophet does not preach based on whims or by the, the type of gifts he receives, and then he bases his message, message on that. Now, true, the message of a true prophet is, is unpopular. 
It's always an unpopular message. He preaches against sin. He confronts people with their sin, as Micah did here, as you see in verse 8. He confronted Israel, Jacob, with their sin. You know, the Apostle Paul did the same thing in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. He calls, there's this comparison going on in 2 Corinthians with, between uh, him and the false prophets, the false apostles. And Paul says about them, he says, those men are false apostles, the guys preaching false doctrine. They're deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as ministers of God, as apostles of Christ. But he says about himself, the signs of a true apostle, there's the contrast, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you by signs and wonders and miracles. The difference between Paul and the false apostles in, in that time, Second Corinthians, was like night and day. The difference between Micah and the false prophets in his time was like night and day. And a true uh, prophet of God, true preacher of God, is going to stand out in a church, in a society like a sore thumb. Everybody's going to know there's something different about this guy. <clears throat> you know, people come to, they flock to a, a place where the popular message is being preached, right? Who's got, a, who's got big churches now in, in, in our circles, guys that have been there for years and years? But who has the big churches outside of our circles? People are preaching a popular message. And that's not something a, false, a true prophet would do. Micah says, I'm filled with power. That word means energy or vitality or vigor. It's the kind of power that will make a person stand up to opposition and discouragement from people. Even though he's being opposed by people, even though people are trying to discourage him from his ministry, they're putting him down, he has the strength, the power to be able to stand. Why? Because God is giving him that power to stand, to make him stand and do that work for God. The next phrase links, is linked with the previous phrase. He says, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. With power, with the Spirit of the Lord. The power Micah is filled with is the Spirit of the Lord. He's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. The power of God is upon Micah to do the work of God here in this setting, his time, which was a bad time in Israel's history, just preceding the Assyrian uh, captivity and domination. You know, Micah is, is not conjuring up human strength to do the work of God. He's not gritting his teeth. He's not digging in and saying, I've got to do God's work, as I've been taught, as I was taught years ago. We've got to dig in and do, and do the work for God. It's all dependent upon us. Now, he's depending upon the power of God. It's, it's at the, as the prophet said, it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that he's doing this work. It's easy for preachers to be guilty of this. It's easy for preachers to be dependent upon their preaching ability, right? There's guys that are great preachers. We've heard, we hear them, and we think, man, those guys are, how do they preach like that? They have this ability, right? And these guys, it's easy for them at times to depend upon their own preaching ability. It's easy to, for them to depend upon their mental capacity to persuade people. It's easy for those guys to depend upon their giftedness or even their personality or charisma. And a lot of guys have that, and they can, they can go with that. And they can depend upon that. Or maybe even a method of homiletics they've come across to convince people and to talk to people. And I don't know how many times I've seen a brochure announcing an upcoming group of speakers and they talk about these you know well-known preachers at a conference or a gathering or something of all kinds throughout the country I'm not thinking of one particular conference and what are the words I invariably see almost always about these preachers does anybody know can you fill in the blanks for me these men are dynamic speakers 
They're dynamic speakers. And I think, oh, here comes the dynamic speakers again. <laughs> Are these guys not dependent upon God or what? I, that's the impression I get. That's okay. It's okay to be a great speaker, but you better be sure you're depending upon the Spirit of the Lord. You're not, it's like G. Campbell Morgan, the, the preacher back in the day in England, the great expositor, that he got to the point where he was depending upon his own ability. And he said, uh, it's almost one day I heard from the Lord, this is, he didn't hear this audibly, but as if the Lord was saying, okay, great preacher, you're great as a preacher. You don't need me anymore. Do it yourself. And Morgan said, I don't want to be that way. I want to depend upon the Spirit of God. I can't, I'll never forget when, a few years ago, we were at the Shepherds Conference. <clears throat> Steve Lawson is a speaker there every year. Some of you know him, some probably do not. He's what many consider to be a great preacher, right? I think he's very skilled in, in preaching, personally. And uh, they had a, after the, after the Friday night uh, conference ended, the last night, they had these guys, Mike <laughs> remembers this, they had these guys <laughs> interviewed, they were interviewing all the speakers throughout the week in the, in the complex outside of the main auditorium outside. It's a big church courtyard there, big property. And they were interviewing the guys in different locations. They interviewed MacArthur right here. They interviewed Steve Lawson over here and other guys, different places. Anyway, I heard some guys, and I ended up where Steve Lawson was. I wanted to hear some of the interview. Some people from the church, a guy from the church was interviewing Steve Lawson. And he asked him questions about his ministry and about his work and how he did things and so on and so forth. Well, I was there with a big crowd of people listening to all this. And Lawson knew this was coming to a conclusion. And he said to the interviewer, he said, now listen, I want you to, to know something. When we get to the end of this interview, I do not want any applause from anybody. Don't, don't have anybody applaud me or I don't want that. And he, was, he meant that sincerely. Steve Lawson's a very humble guy. Didn't want to get the credit that was due to God, right? So what happened when they got through with the interview? The interviewer said, now let's everybody give a big hand to Steve Lawson. And I thought to myself, did you not hear what this guy just said? He said, don't do that, and you're doing it. And everybody clapped. Well, Lawson, I could tell, was kind of coming unglued when that, I was watching him. He didn't like that at all, and he started yelling, go God, go God, when this applause was going on. He wanted God to get the credit. The fault, that, that's what a true preacher will do, a true, a true man of God. He'll be under, under the influence of the Spirit of God, and he'll want God to get the glory. He does things... He does the work of God in the way that God wants it done. So God gets the praise. And that's how we want to do things. You know, it's impossible to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. It's impossible. Micah says, I'm filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. Now, I know that, you know, we've been influenced by the charismatic movement. And have you noticed that people don't talk about the Holy Spirit anymore? Has anybody noticed this or just me? That people don't talk about the Holy Spirit anymore because he's taboo now we can't talk about him because the charismatics took that over right that's not what listen whatever doctrine is taught in the word of god we need to stay with with exactly what it says not any more or any less this is true of any doctrine this happens all the time guys go to seed on a doctrine and they get carried away one way or the other we always stick with what the word of god says about a subject in the bible and that's true with the holy spirit it says we should be filled with the spirit and that's not the private domain of charismatics or Pentecostals. That's for all of God's people to, to hear and understand. Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive, when uh, the early church was getting started, Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, right? Jerusalem and so on. That's something that, that God wanted. We say, oh, that's the book of Acts. We can't follow that. 
That's for another time and period, uh, day and age. No, that's that's always been true in the Bible. Uh, Jesus, when if you look through, if you read through the book of Luke, as Mike's going through Luke now, the baptism of Christ in Luke three, Holy Spirit came upon him. The temptation of Christ in Luke four. It says before the temptation started, Jesus came in the power of the Spirit. During the temptation, he didn't fail. After the temptation, he left in the power of the Spirit, it says. It goes on and on like that throughout his ministry. And you, and you say, well, we're not Jesus. Yeah, it's all the more reason for us to be filled with the Spirit, right? To walk in the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 is very plain. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be intoxicated, to the contrast to wine, be intoxicated with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? Be controlled by the Spirit. The thing for us to do is to yield ourselves, not to wine, but to the Holy Spirit, to be under his control, right? To do the work of God in the way he wants it done. So Old Testament prophets needed to be filled with the Spirit as Micah was. Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He told his apostles to be filled with the Spirit. And today, believers need to be filled with the Spirit as well. What else was Micah filled with? Well, it says in verse 8, not only the Spirit of the Lord, he said, I'm filled with justice and courage. Unlike the false prophets, Micah was filled with justice. He hadn't violated the, the, the justice system as the leaders had. Uh, look, you can tell his attitude of, of, about justice from chapter 3, verse 1, his questioning of the leaders. He says, is it not for you to know justice? Don't you guys, wait a minute, he says to the leaders of the country. Isn't it your job to understand justice and to carry it out? Isn't that the job you're, you've been given to do? Don't you understand that? The questioning alone shows Micah's attitude towards what justice should be all about. We can see his hatred of injustice by the way he describes the rulers in verses 2 and 3 like cannibals. He absolutely despises all the injustices taking place in Israel at that time. And he's filled with courage. He's brave. He's got the capability of facing up to his adversaries that, that he comes across, which is needed in spiritual battle, right? Which is needed in the war that against, against Satan, against his ministers, against his, his uh, strategies. He didn't muster up this courage on his own. Once again, it's, this came from God. He says, I'm filled with justice and courage. It's a passive thing. I'm filled by God with this. God gave him this courage. He's filled with courage from God himself. Just like Joshua, Joshua 1 was told to be strong and of good courage. And it wasn't on his own that he, that he had this because God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'll take care of you, Joshua. Just depend upon me. Depend upon my word. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of, of discipline, right? So this is something from God. Well, what was the purpose for Micah to be filled with the spirit of the Lord? Why was he filled with power and with courage and with justice? Well, it says in verse 8, for this reason, to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. That's the same phrase he uses in chapter 1, verse 5, by the way, about Israel and Jacob. Those two words, sin and rebellion, show that they, the people had broken off their relationship with God in all kinds of imaginable ways, in all kinds of wrongdoing. And so Micah is giving the task of declaring to the people their, dis, their disobedience to God. He's saying, you people have sinned against God. You've rebelled against God. You've turned your back on God. And this idea, this phrase, to make known is very interesting. The, word, the phrase means to place a matter on high. It's to, it's to make something conspicuous and known in public. 
Michael was to let these people know in no uncertain terms, you guys have sinned against God. I'm going to make this a very obvious matter before you. I'm going to make it very plain to you. You've sinned against God, and you need to get right with God. And he did that. They had sinned against God grievously. It was Micah's job to publicly make it conspicuous to them what they had done. So they would know in no uncertain terms, you've sinned against God. I'm standing here as a witness against you. You can see the stark contrast between Micah and the false prophets in verse 8. Very plain to see, right? So he denounces the false prophets of Israel. Then thirdly, in verses 9 to 12, the collective leadership of Israel is denounced. The collective leadership of Israel is denounced. He kind of hits everybody all over again. He goes after the entire leadership, judges, priests, prophets, you name it. It's kind of a summary to the whole chapter. He blasts them all over again. In verse 9, he talks about their injustice. He says, now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. That sounds like verse 1 all over again, right? Mike is beginning to sound like a broken record. He's so angry about the injustices being done, he repeats the theme all over again. He starts all over again on this whole thing. He says, you guys, you're the leaders of the house of Israel, the guys in charge, and yet you abhor justice? It's unimaginable. Word means they have, it's the idea of utter abhorrence. That literally it says, you regard as detestable, you regard as a detestable thing, justice. You think it's absolutely detestable and abhorrent in your sight. You hate the idea of justice. Not only did they carry out injustice, but they detested the very idea of true justice. They abhorred it. And that's why in verse 2 he describes them as hating good and loving evil. What a, to what depths they had sunk as a leadership to the point to where they not only had injustice, but they hated the idea, despised, abhorred the idea of, of true justice. And he says, you twist everything that is straight. That word straight is the same word for righteous or upright. It's the idea, if you're, if you're straight in this sense, it's conduct that's honest, it's upright. doesn't go astray or out of bounds away from God's word. That's what being straight is back then. But the leaders of the nation had this habit of turning that which was a straight path into that which was crooked. They would veer off the straight path of God's word and they would pervert justice. And that's what they were doing. And Micah picks up the theme again and blasts them once again. So they're in justice. Verse 10 talks about their violence. He says here, you build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Wow. They keep going downhill. Building Zion with bloodshed, Jerusalem with violent injustice. They're building it that way. It could be that forced labor or something was used in the building of uh, of complexes or buildings in Jerusalem. Um, laborers maybe were worked to the point of exhaustion uh, in their efforts to build. One commentator says that these, they have squeezed, the, the leaders have squeezed the slender resources of their victims by nothing short of bloodshed to provide the brick and mortar for their flamboyant municipal works. So they built, yeah, but to what cost? They built Zion with bloodshed. Now it's interesting that he Instead of saying here, and he talks about Jerusalem in the next line, it's parallelism. He built Zion with, they built Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. He's talking about Jerusalem. But why does he use the word Zion here? Zion is the city of God. That's what it was known as. It was the place where Zion, you think of the term Zion, Zion, you think of, oh, that's where the temple of God is. That's where we worship God. 
That's the city of God. That's the place of God's residence and dwelling. That's the city we love, Zion, the place of where God is, right? But he says, you take the city of God, Zion, and you build it with bloodshed. What an ironic statement to make. What a contrast there. And he says, you build Jerusalem with violent injustice. Once again, dealing with injustice, but this time talking about the fact that it's violent, their injustice toward people. They practice violence. Injustice, not enough for these people. They had to go beyond that. They had to be violent about everything they did, even to the point of death. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've kept up with the news lately on this, but not only in London with all the craziness going on over there, but the flash mob violence that, that has been taking place in America that took place in Chicago some time ago where people just get together just to be mean and violent to people, to hurt them unnecessarily. A guy in the state fair in Wisconsin was people were dragging people out of their cars and beating them up. This is in our country. We're talking about America. This just recently, this year, last few months. And then in Philadelphia last week, they had flash mob violence. These guys were getting together and going to the fashionable areas of Philadelphia and just beating people up, just hurting them. Uh, somebody called it Philadelphia, by the way, which I thought might be an apt name for the city. I'm not sure. But that's, I mean, that's the kind of stuff, violence is just beginning to mark our country. By the way. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but violence is beginning to mark America in a great way. Over and over again, you hear about it. We're, we're immune to it now. We hear it about it every day. But it marked Israel in that time as well. Violent injustice. And then notice their greed in verse 11. Look at the first three lines of verse 11. Her leaders pronounced judgment for a bribe. That's the leaders. Her priests instruct for a price. And her prophets divine for money. All three of these groups, leaders, priests, prophets, doing what they do to gain uh, monetary wealth of some kind or to gain money. The same type idea that was found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, where those people were taking houses away from others and their land away from others, taking their inheritance away out of Israel because of greed. And here they have this, they're marked by greed again. The leaders he talks about pronounce judgment for a bribe. The judge, these are probably judges he's talking about, are doing what they do for a bribe. If you give the judge a bribe, some money under the table, then he'll pass a sentence in, in your favor. That's what they were doing. Now, the Old Testament was very clear that, that was wrong. No doubt about it at all. Exodus 23.8 said, You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes, blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. But these guys ignored the law altogether and took bribes. And then notice what the priests did. They instruct for a price. <clears throat> It was, you know, it was the responsibility of the priest to teach the, the law to people, the word of God, right? But they were doing so for money. It kind of makes you wonder what they were teaching. Or maybe they were throwing in some scripture and it made it sound good and people didn't know what was going on, like a lot of happens today. But what they did, they made their teaching a source for gain. It should never happen. It was their duty to teach the law and decide controversies, not to enrich themselves, but they were doing the latter. And the Lord had made provision for the priest. With the tithes that were given, they should have been dependent upon that and satisfied with that, but they weren't. They were corrupt. The priesthood were. And then the prophets were divining for money. Literally, they were divining for silver. People would seek out prophets to find out God's will on a given matter. But in Micah's time, you did that, it was going to cost you. Okay, but it's going to cost you. You want to know something? Yeah, but it's going to cost you. And they would do it for money. 
They use their ops to take money. And we've seen these guys already in action, right, in verse 5, where they would, if they had something to eat with, uh, to bite with their teeth, they would cry peace, but otherwise forget it. And notice their false hope in verse 11 as well, latter part of verse 11. Yet these same people, prophets and priests and leaders, these same guys who are taking bribes, they're guilty of violent injustice and so on and so forth, they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord among us? Is he not in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. That's what they said. Isn't the Lord among us? Wait a minute. This doesn't seem to go, seems to go counter to the rest of the chapter that we've just read here. But doesn't it look like a good thing? It says they lean on the Lord. Doesn't Proverbs 3, 5 say not to trust in yourself but not to lean on your own understanding but lean on God, right? Isn't that a good thing? They were leaning on the Lord. But not really because when you look at the full context here, they, were not, they, only, they didn't lean on the Lord. They only professed to lean on him because they say these words in verse 11, calamity is not the Lord in our midst. Calamity will not overtake us. In other words, they were saying Jerusalem is the city of God. That's where God's temple is. God's going to protect us. We don't have to worry about anything at all. We got it made. God's got us covered. We're his people. This is his city. That's his temple. He's going to take care of us. We don't have anything to worry about at all. They felt like they were invincible. But they had misinterpreted the promise of God to be with them and thinking that it was a license for them to do whatever they wanted, to send any, any way they wanted to. I remember I had a... Uh, a friend that lived down the road from us uh, one time. My mom knows who I'm talking about. And uh, he was a Catholic. And uh, I was able to get with this guy and have a Bible study with him at his house. In fact, we talked about it. He said, yeah, come over. We'll do that. So I went over there and started laying the groundwork for uh, salvation and a lot of things like that. But um, when we talked to him for a long time. But he told me, he says, you Protestants, he called me a Protestant, <laughs> you Protestants believe that if, you know, once you're saved, you're, you can sin all you want. And, and you still be saved. And I said, no Protestant in his right mind believes that. That's not what the scripture teaches at all. If you heard someone say that, they don't understand the Bible. Scripture does not teach that you can get away with sin and say, oh, we know the Lord. We know the Lord, therefore we can do whatever we want. It doesn't say that anywhere. And that's what these guys were saying. The Lord's in our midst. Calamity's not going to overtake us. We can do whatever we want. So they had a false hope. And then look at verse 12, their culpability their accountability. He says, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be, will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. That word, therefore, in verse 12, links what went before it with what follows. He says, therefore, on account of you, Micah is holding the leadership of Israel responsible for the judgment that is to come. He says, on account of you, on account of who? On account of the leaders he's talking about in the whole chapter. He's condemned them from verse 1 on. On account of you guys, the supposed leadership of Israel, the leadership, yes, the, the leadership of Israel, but not doing a very good job of it, prophets included, priests and all. On account of you guys, your prophets, your priests, your civic leaders, God's going to judge you because of what you've done. On account of your injustice, your violence against people, your greed, and so on, Judah's going to be published are going to be punished because they've let, you guys have led the nation astray. You don't think the proper leadership is necessary? It's very necessary to have a proper leadership, to good, good leadership, because leaders influence God's people. They influence people for, for God or against him. And they influence the covenant people of God to judgment because of their 
bad instruction because of their bad lifestyle. The only, the only guy in this whole thing that we know about for sure that was really godly was King Hezekiah, who reigned during this time. We'll see that in a minute. But he alone could not stem the tide of evil, even though he brought about reforms. Jotham, uh, I mean, uh, my, going back to Hosea and Sunday school. Micah 1.1, Micah ministered under the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham was a pretty good king, but he didn't make a real impact. Ahaz was a wicked king, but Hezekiah was a God-fearing king and had some reforms, but not far enough because you still had these guys holding positions of leadership underneath them that were corrupt. Well, what would happen to them as to the people as a result of the many corrupt leaders? Well, it says in verse 12, Zion's going to be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the temple will become a high place of a forest. Jerusalem would be devastated. The temple would be destroyed, even become just part of the forest. You walk through the forest one day, and, oh, there's a temple here at one time? There's trees growing everywhere now. That was going to happen. That's not the end of the story, though. Verse 12 doesn't end the story. There's a very, very interesting verse in Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 26.12. Jeremiah 26.12. This is about, Jeremiah's time is about 100 years later, after Micah's time. Jeremiah 26.12. Jeremiah is speaking, and he says this, Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people, saying, the Lord sent me to prophesy against his house and against his city all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways. Mike is, I mean, Jeremiah is preaching to the people. Amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. The Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he, which he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. They were threatening to kill him. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves on this city and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all the words, these words in your hearing. So what's the response to this? Verse 16, Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, No death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then some of the elders of the land rose up. Listen to what they say. Some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morasheth. Wait a minute. That's the same guy we were talking about in, in the book of Micah a hundred years before. Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Anybody seen this verse anywhere? Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house of the high, as the high places of a forest. He quotes Micah... 312. Micah said that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The guy Micah of Morasheth, the same one we'd be talking about. Verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, <clears throat> and all Judah put him to death? They put Micah of Morasheth to death? Did he not fear the Lord, Hezekiah? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against him. And then he postponed it until a later time, the Lord did. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves if we deal with this situation wrongly. Isn't that interesting? This confirms that Micah prophesied. There's many things we can learn from this. One is it confirms that Micah prophesied during the reign of Hezekiah, as he said. Micah prophesied prior to Jeremiah about 100 years. Micah's prophecy was considered to be the word of God by these people. They're quoting it as such. 
This is very interesting. Micah's preaching was heeded by King Hezekiah. Did Micah reach anybody with his preaching at all? He reached King Hezekiah. The king was listening to Micah and said, he's right. You never know how the message you're preaching is affecting people. You never know. Who it's affecting? It may be one guy. I don't know who was always affected by his message. I know the king was. But King Hezekiah was affected by the message of Micah of Moresheth, the prophet. The minor prophet, we don't like those minor prophets. We don't deal with them too often, right? Was preaching. He was affected by this message. Never know. I've, had, I've heard messages where the guy wasn't even was speaking on a totally different subject and something came to my head that was totally different. But because of, he was preaching on that scripture or I saw something, it just, boom, hit me hard. You never know how a message is affecting someone, even when Balaam's donkey said something, right? The word of God is its not the guy behind here. It's the word of God, right, that is, is powerful, that affects people. It's very interesting to me that Hezekiah responded to that word. The prayers of Hezekiah were answered by God, and he delayed the disaster until a later time. And we can learn about the warnings of God from that last phrase in verse 19, we're committing a great evil against ourselves. We better learn from Micah in the past and the word of God, right? And Babylon ultimately fulfills the prophecy of Micah in 2 Kings chapter 25, and, they, and then uh, Assyria affects them in Babylon later as well, as is said here in Jeremiah. Well, you can see from Micah chapter 3 that leadership matters, right? It matters who your leaders are, whether it's a government or whether it's in a church, or whether it's in a home, it matters what kind of leaders you are. Every, most people here are a leader in some form or another, maybe in your home, maybe in church or otherwise, maybe one day in government, I don't know. And the children here are going to grow up, and they're going to be leaders one day in their homes and maybe in church. And it matters how people lead. We want to be the kind of leaders that please God, right? And we want to teach our children to be one day the kind of leaders that please God and that have the right impact upon society or upon a church or upon their home or upon the world in general or at large. By and large, Israel failed in their leadership. As you read the Old Testament, you see it again and again. you got the handful of guys that stand out that were good leaders, strong leaders for God. Some exceptions like Hezekiah, but many were unjust and corrupt. What kind of leader... Are you now in your home? What kind of leader am I? Am I? What kind of leaders are you in your realm of influence that uh, people you influence, have influence over? What kind of leaders are you in the church? We need people that will, all of us need to be the kind that would please God. Godly leadership lines up with God's word, right? In both belief and in practice. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together for your word. Uh, we just pray that uh, we will be the kind of leaders that will please you, that we'll have a, a mindset that, to know that when we, uh, whatever we do as leaders influences others by even, if not our words, uh, heeding our words, but by our actions, our lifestyles. They see us. <clears throat> they see our example or lack of it. We pray like Paul told Timothy, we'd be an example of the believers in word and, uh, and love and faith, purity, and all these areas, Lord, that we would be lead by, lead by example. And we just praise in Christ's name. Amen.